0: Welcome to Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Coast, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. I'm Marcos Molestas. I'm here with Carrie Aliveld. Welcome to our weekly show about politics, Daily Coast, The Brief. We have a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about the future of the Republican Party. If the current party has any hope of emerging from its sort of queue abyss that it is currently on. We're also going to be talking about rural America and just sort of this perception that this is all about whites people, but in fact, there are a lot of people of color, voters of color in rural America. It's the reason we want Arizona and Georgia. And so we're gonna see where else could we make some gains with rural and could we even make some gains with white rural voters? And we're gonna be talking to Matt Hildreth, he's the executive director of ruralorganizing.org about rural America. So Carrie, before we get started with our guests, I've been I've been sort of amazed at the Republican Party and their reaction to the COVID relief bill, right? They're they're, they're threatening Democrats with withholding all their votes. They're, they're saying, since you're not listening to us, we're not going to give you any votes. And I can't think of a better political outcome than a 100% Democrat-Republican split on the COVID relief bill, because then the messaging in 2022 is so crystal clear, right? One party helped you out. The other party did its best to not help you out. Right. So what What are they thinking? What's going on over there?
1: My question is, who the heck are their pollsters polling? I mean, you know, I, there's been problems with polls. But when you have, I mean, th- this thing, this COVID relief bill, and most of the elements of it, right, includes especially including the $1,400 direct payments um, to struggling Americans, especially including, you know, um, money for state and locales to make sure that their police departments and fire departments continue to be funded, that they can, you know, try to use the money to get back to school, open up the schools. I mean, this is incredibly, these, these poll well, individually and as a package very well. So I haven't seen hardly any polling, whether you look at, you know, Quinnipiac, uh, you know, a traditional poll like that, or if you look at a, a YouGov poll, it, it, it polls at around 70 percent with a really high majority support among Republicans, even Republican voters. So the the, the Quinnipiac poll was around 68 percent. The YouGov poll was around 83 percent. So it all depends, you know, a little bit. Yeah, on like
0: it looks like. Biden is United,
1: yeah. Yeah, Biden is uniting
0: ahead. the party. And what's really interesting is that none of the Republican conservative pollsters are releasing any numbers on this. So there's no even counter messaging that that America doesn't like this creeping socialism or whatever nonsense they are calling it today. And, and so I, I, I just can't understand why they would make these threats, what they think they're doing and how do they think this is not going to bite them in the ass? I mean, what is that 2022 messaging look like for them?
1: I don't know. And also, is it creeping socialism? Because you didn't call it creepy social creeping socialism when you did it while Trump was president, right? Because I mean, it's like they did pass COVID relief bills while Trump was president. The only difference now is Biden's president, and they don't like the price tag on it. Well, welcome. You know, I mean, that they, they were plenty happy to add two trillion do- dollars to the debt for you know rich people in corporate America, but they just can't and their
0: wars before. as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, they have
0: no problem spending the money unless it's actually helping people. And suddenly they had this big this big problem. And I think part of it is they're operating on this this sort of, I don't know, antiquated notion that bipartisanship means having votes from from Republicans and of course the Republicans never cared about getting Democratic votes for their priorities. Right. So this has always has always been a one way street. But in fairness, Democrats have been uh, susceptible to that. Right. Obama was always so desperate to get Republican votes that it actually hamstrung his agenda for years and I think led to the 2010 uh, Republican wipeout. Of of Democrats. And now you have Biden who says, no, no, bipartisanship isn't Mitch McConnell. Why would it be? Bipartisanship is America. And like you just pointed out, the polling is very clear that these uh, measures have strong support, even among Republicans. And I think that's very important to note because Mitch McConnell doesn't get to decide what's bipartisan anymore.
1: I will say, I I think part of the problem for Mitch McConnell is he is, you talked about this antiquated notion of, you know, this antiquated notion of what they're trying to do. Part of it is, is that the... I think the, the Republican Party is sort of groundless right now, right? They they don't. Are they the party of Trump or are they a party of conservative principles? Well, I mean, you know, I would say they're a little bit of both. They're more, but they're way more a party of Trump right now than they are conservative principles. And so when they don't have anything that really unifies, when they can't give an elevator pitch for their own party, they've decided that what they're going to do is just be the anti-Democrat, anti, you know, Biden, anti-COVID religious party. Okay. You know, and this is to me a totally antiquated strategy born of 2009, 2010, when it worked fairly well for them, when they, when they were able to recapture the house in two years, in the first two years, um, in the midterms after opposing everything Obama did and everything Democrats wanted to do. The problem is for McConnell is, It's not the same caucus he doesn't have the iron grip on the caucus that he did and nothing made that more apparent than his his inability to lead the caucus through this post trump era when he could have cut ties with trump and it would have been hard but they could have said hey we're going to be the party of conservative principles we're going to get back we're going to extricate this whole you know and exile this whole cult of personality situation and we're going to get back to being who we are. And he wasn't able to do that. He didn't have the juice of uh, the political juice in his caucus to do it. Number one. And the voters, the the voting base changed enough during the Trump era that the GOP base is no longer, you know, it, it really is. They're trying to have this hybrid of these two different competing notions of what the party is. In any case, he's, he's heading into battle with this 2009 2010 playbook, but the army he's leading into battle in terms of the voters and the GOP caucus in the Senate, it's not the same. It's not the same caucus. It's not the same voting base. And it's not the same army he's leading into battle. And it's just, I think it's a recipe for disaster for them.
0: Might be from the outside seeing these hidden deplorables, these Trump only voters is they don't have a single conservative bone in their body. I don't even think they could, they could, uh, uh, speak to what those principles are supposed to be. That, that's why they they're, they're you know trapped in Q land and, and Trump is the Messiah, whatever that that weird messaging is that they have. And this is where Republicans have a problem because they need to bring those voters back from the fold. But here's a sort of question: This relief bill has a child tax credit that pays out monthly. It's three hundred and sixty dollars, I think, if it's under six, and six and over, it's three hundred dollars a month. I'm not sure why older children get less money because they're just as expensive, if not more. But this is a monthly tax credit that's going to be mailed by the IRS to families that meet certain income uh, thresholds, which is a lot of America. And so I can't I can see even Q aligned voters looking at that check and realizing if it's between keep getting that check or vote in Republican, it might not be that easy of a decision to make. And so, again, it leads me back to this idea. These are not and you said it, it's a different electorate. These are not Republicans who are like all about small government and fiscal responsibility. And oh, heavens, the deficit, it's so high. Right. They, they don't care. They Don't even understand those things. They probably probably don't even know they exist as concepts, but if you got a check coming in and you have to vote between not getting that check anymore. You may have some interesting dynamics at play in
1: 2022. All right. Now we have Matt Heldreth, and I'm going to let you take it away, Marcus.
0: <laughs> so Matt is the ex- executive director, correct? Of the dot yep. organizing.org. He's focusing on tr- trying to... Uh, I mean, you could say it better than I. But uh, quite simply, we need better democratic performance in rural areas. They are traditionally sort of uh, what's the word we're looking for here? Uh, neglected? <laughs> neglected? Uh, yeah, that's kind. And, Thank you. And yeah. <laughs> maybe it's yeah, an understatement, but. Um, It's clear if you look at the 2020 results that particularly Arizona and Georgia, rural votes were critical. And people think when they think of rural America, me included, I'm just as guilty. I think white people. It's not the case, right? Well,
2: absolutely. I mean, so rural America is whiter when you look at the numbers than urban areas. But uh, there's actually like three times more people of color in rural, rural communities than farmers. So, you know, the idea that we go straight from rural to farmer, that's only like 6% of the rural population. But when you're talking about rural people of color, it's a lot closer to 20%. Uh, And 20% um, is a lot of people nationally, but it's even more when you start looking at the South. And I think that's why we've had so much success uh, in the South recently is when you look at, um, I think Democrats have, have finally understood that you know, rural doesn't mean white. And they've really, I think, leaned into rural communities of color, especially in places like Georgia and I think North Carolina as well. Arizona, as you mentioned uh, also.
1: Well, let me just go ahead and say, I know that you guys have, uh, you know, your, your organization has a, um, a new treasure trove of information about these voters, just rural voters overall, what worked and didn't work in uh, 2020. And you, I think you did something like uh, 60 exit, or exit interviews or something like that. We'd love to hear some of your takeaways from that information uh, just to kick off the conversation.
2: We have kind of two sets of data that we've been looking at. All last year, uh, we did an extensive amount of public opinion research and polling. And then also we uh, partnered with uh, like Latino decisions and a number of groups like NAACP and others on some election eve polling. So we have that data uh, for analyzing kind of performance and things like that uh, for voters. But then also what we've done since the election at, is uh, we've set out what we call uh, exit interviews, where we go through and actually talk to organizers, rural organizers uh, on the front lines, actually working, knocking on the doors or making phone calls in a lot of cases this year with COVID to actually hear from them about, you know, what they're seeing in the communities. Um, and so even there, you know, when we look like the, the sample of rural voters that we're looking to to really engage, it's like 30 percent are people of color. So there's this real strong investment that I think happened in uh, in 2020 that I hope will continue around uh, organizing, like we said, specifically in Georgia. But also the rural Utah project did a lot of amazing organizing with the Navajo Nation uh, in Arizona as well. So we've been talking to those people to really understand, like, what is what is happening and what is your take? Because frankly, as we've seen uh, a lot of times, the sort of K Street, Beltway, Democrats uh, really just create their own narratives and then (laughs) people start building their campaigns off of stereotypes instead of actually what's happening on the ground.
0: So one of those narratives is that the AOC style of democratic politics is a big turnoff in rural America. Do you have numbers in your data that, that either support or reject that idea?
2: Yeah. So the most unpopular thing about Democrats is Democrats, like the name Democrats, like there is a lot of uh, of, uh, I think hesitation around the democratic national brand. Um, I don't know that I would associate that directly to like AOC or Bernie. If you look at like how Bernie did in, in rural Iowa during the caucus, I mean, that's a rural, that's one of the more white rural States. Bernie actually did really well and a lot better than what people expected in rural communities, Elizabeth Warren as well. So I think that there's this old history of that like prairie populace, that progressive populace, you know, best case scenario, uh, that rural people really respond to. Um, I think, like I always say, like if Fox News tells us something, like if Fox News could tell us that buttered toast is bad, uh, you know, there's a whole 30 percent of the population that's going to believe that. And a huge chunk of those people do live in rural communities. So I don't tend to really worry about what, uh, you know, Fox News is saying. um, And I don't think we should really build, you know, strategies off of that. And the Fox News viewers probably don't appreciate AOC. But what she was right about when it comes to rural communities is Facebook. More rural people get their news from Facebook than Fox News. And she called out the Democrats for our failures, uh, en- engaging voters online. And I think that is one of the biggest things that uh, she's right on about. And I think that is something that really resonates with the numbers we're seeing with rural voters.
1: And and something that you that you mentioned to us uh that that struck me was one of the biggest problems with rural, rural voters and whether or not they have an allegiance to Democrats or Republicans is that they they are interested in someone who's fighting for them. So is this person fighting for me? And their perception, regardless of whether the policies backed it up, right, was that Trump was a fighter for them and that Biden wasn't enough of a fighter for them. So there that that seemed to be. You, you were saying that progressive policies overall actually pull really well with these folks, but they don't think Democrats are actually fighting for them.
2: That's right. I mean, the disinformation in rural communities is, is really unbelievable. So we actually find that like rural people will agree with the statement that government should should ensure affordable health care for all Americans, which, you know, posters <laughs> that you hear out of D.C. would sort of like never use that language. That language is still doing like 60, 70 percent among rural voters. Um, so, but then, whether you get into the the disinformation, is they actually think Republicans are the ones that are going to be that able to, you know, ensure that they have affordable health care. So that's we're really crazy. losing people on that, yeah, on that partisanship. Um, so that, I mean, I think that's that. <laughs> that's just one example, but there are plenty of examples of of the just sort of mind blowing uh, numbers on on how this all gets interpreted by the voter. Uh-
0: are there any issues that are sort of core democratic issues that actually do turn off rural voters? Are there anything where it's not misinformation but yeah, legitimately they don't believe in i don't know more immigration or student debt relief or things like that?
2: yeah, so I mean my motto just to say is lose less uh so like i don't I'm not you know I just as like I'm you know. Building a majority, I think that it is going to come to running up the numbers in urban areas, um, and so like when you look at the cost benefit analysis on here, like we do need to run up the base numbers in rural areas or in urban areas while reducing the margins in rural communities. And so, under in that sort of context, I would say not really. Uh, but if you do look like at, for example, uh, whether or not the Second Amendment abolishes yeah. all gun laws like, you know, that's above 50% in rural areas. And so that is a tougher one. But if you start talking about, you know, school shootings and you talk about, you know, uh, machine guns and weapons of war, like you start getting into the low, the mid to high 40% support. So you are underwater on those issues. But then if you add where we're at in the urban areas, like it really is not a liability as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah. So what when you did these exit interviews, what did people say... Uh, You know, what's their prescription for trying to change how Democrats are perceived? Or did they have any success with that? Um, Or was it simply reaching out to new voters that Democrats hadn't reached out to before that that did, uh, you know, that was more successful for them?
2: Yeah, so I think it's a. I think it's all a mix. Um, I do think that, especially when we're talking about voters of color, like this whole project that I'm working on now started while I was in Steve King's congressional district. You know, and if you look at where the progress in in Iowa is happening right now, it's happening through groups like LULAC, bringing new voters to the table, and some of the best organizing in the whole state of Iowa is coming from those those rural areas. Uh, so I think that's kind of the the, the first piece of it. Um, you know the other advice
0: that we're getting from people, is and like, just to be, LULAC is uh, focusing on the Latino vote. I just want people right. to understand. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. They're doing amazing work in Iowa, and so where you know where we're seeing progress is in these immigrant meatpacking communities because yeah. LULAC is organizing. So that that is, I think you see that in like Dodge City, Kansas, as well. I mean, there are a number of immigrant communities across the Midwest and South where that type of organizing is shifting things. So bringing new people to the table, I think, is in a really important piece of this. But the the voters that I'm really interested in are not the Obama Trump voters you know I think so much was played on the Obama Trump voter I'm interested I'm in Ohio now so I'm interested in the Sherrod Brown Donald Trump voter and I I, I still think we don't fully understand that dynamic or the John tester you know uh, uh, Trump voter and I think that I think that when you look at the, the the Democrats that do well in those states even in the white rural states it's because they understand a progressive message when it comes to the economy and when it comes to workers, and they're able to pull together kind of this, you know, I think racial justice message and and connect it with this extraction and exploitation message that you get from somebody like Sherrod Brown when he's talking about coal communities in Appalachia, Ohio. And I think that there's a lot to learn uh, as we move forward, even in places like Pennsylvania that has a, a much higher white rural population, but there's still so much we can do uh, for engaging these workers and connecting, you know, a narrative that that really focuses on uh, empowerment instead of exploitation.
0: I mean, you know, it's actually interesting that John Tester, uh, Sherrod Brown are really good examples, uh, but those are also two states that other Democrats have had difficulty. And we just had a, a, an analysis released by Daily Coast Elections that showed that we are most polarized In the lowest number of tickets, um, ticket splitters in decades. I forget the number, but it's it's a big, big number. And so I I do wonder, would John Tester survive an election with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket? There's a question about how many of those Donald Trump voters will turn out for not Donald Trump, of course. Right. But would John Tester survive? Would uh, would um, Sherrod Brown survive losing Ohio by eight points? But winning that that Senate seat, do you think there's still those those Democrats still have that ability to pull in that vote? I mean, I think we need some real, some real, real talk
2: about that. You know, like I, I think that those are great questions. The perception is in Montana when you talk to the organizers, and I'll even throw in South Dakota, going back as far as Dashil, that there was a time when you know in South Dakota that Democrats knew how to engage the indigenous communities, and the Democrats since Dashil have really lost sight of that. And if you look in South Dakota, the highest, the highest Democratic voting counties are also the lowest participation counties on the reservations. You also hear that with test in Montana as well. So I do think that there's something to be said about the Democrats that know how to engage Native communities. We see that in Arizona, of course, as well. But, you know, a, a state like Ohio or like, you know, West Virginia, I, I, you know, at some point, we just got to say, like, you know, we have to be real about what, what can be done. I do think it would be tough to see, you know, Sherrod Brown and Donald Trump. I think Sherrod Brown is, is also moving backwards compared to other voters or compared to other years with rural voters, but I, I, I'm not ready to give up yet. At the same time, uh, you mentioned Mississippi before. You know, we got on this call. If you look at places in the South where you have rural voters of color, I do think that's where the opportunities really are, and I think we have to keep coming back to that uh, because the, you know, in the in the states where you have emerging black leadership and uh, you know the progressive infrastructure getting behind them, that's where we're seeing the success more than anything.
1: So, so what's the so what's the next Georgia, the next place where we're able to, Democrats are unable able uh, to engage enough new rural voters, uh, many of whom are people of color, in order to flip our our uh, flip the state.
2: Yeah. North Carolina would be the first one I would go to. I mean, we've had success there in the past and it was so close this last time. If you look at our numbers, when we did the analysis, looking at rural communities, there was a lot of really, you know, uh, uh, forward progression. Um, it wasn't enough. The rural numbers are I think a little bit hard to read because Trump did see a wave election in rural America while Democrats also improved over their 2016 numbers. So like, yes, Trump did better than Democrats because he had a wave in rural America. I'm not trying to downplay that or deny that. But also Democrats did bring up their rural numbers compared to 2016. Mm -hmm. And so it was sort of like two simultaneous wave elections happening, you know, in the same time talking to two completely different universes. But if you do look at at the I think the groundwork that's being laid in North Carolina groups like uh, Puder or down home, uh, they're just doing amazing work. And I think that's
0: where the real opportunity is going to be moving forward. (laughs) Carrie, we need to get some of those groups on, on the show for sure. Uh, to put sort of context to what you just said, man, and, and I've talked about this before on the show, but for everybody to understand that, Donald Trump got 350,000 more votes in Georgia than he did in 2016. But we won the state because Joe Biden got 600,000 more votes. And what's right. amazing is that in the Southwestern counties of Georgia, which are heavily Black, heavily African American, the voter turnout increased dramatically in the runoff election in January. And historically, Democrats have always underperformed in that special in runoff elections, so much so that it was by design. It was a Jim Crow anti-Black law. And of course, now Georgia Republicans want to change that yeah. because it's no longer suppressing the Black vote. So it's lost its its purpose. But um, the the I, I didn't even know there was a Georgia black, rural vote until maybe a year ago when I was at a meeting of uh, progressive leaders and they were talking about this Georgia rural black vote. And I, I, I was like, I can't be that many people. Can you give us a sense of just in raw numbers how many people we are talking about in states like North Carolina? And so North Carolina, it's
2: like 11 percent of the total voting population or voters, rural voters, the entire state of the entire state. And then when you get into Georgia, it's, 14, real. it's 14%. So if, you, if you're you talking about in both states, just rural voters, a third are voters of color. So, I mean, it's, and then when you get into Mississippi, Mississippi is a heavily rural state. It's almost like, a depending on how you cover it, uh, that's almost like all of it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's almost literally 90%. Uh, a third of the whole voting population in Mississippi are rural voters of color. So you look at these states and it's just, I think we've completely forgotten about it. Uh, about this whole dynamic. And I think that Democrats, as we start getting back, progressives, as we start getting back into that footing, I think we're gonna be in a much better place.
0: Yeah, I wonder if we've forgotten it or we just, I mean, first of all, obviously communities of color don't get a lot of attention to begin with. Yep. And then you take them out of the places where you'd run into them, right? I mean, the you know rural Latino, com- I mean, an urban uh, community of color, they're right there, you know. people who live in the city see them. But when you're talking about rural America, it's kind of hidden in general to people who don't live in those small towns. So I don't even know if it's a question of we forgot they they were there but more of like you know holy crap these people exist and there are voters and there was never really any effort to to reach those voters and it's still a logistical challenge right because in a city you have you have numbers and you have density and it's easier to reach mass number of people how do you reach these winnable gettable voters uh, that are democratic-leaning in rural America? How do you reach them?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I think there's like a, a few very specific ways. We've, I think AOC was right about just the need to be better online and be better on Facebook and make better content. Uh, we've started working uh, with progressive rural comedians, and they are way better at engaging rural southern voters than that's you know, cool. us, us with, you know, policies. But then you look at, like, um, the local organizing that's happening in these communities, you have to trust the base. I mean, I think that's the number one thing we keep running into is, you know, we can do distributed organizing. You have to do distributed organizing in small towns and rural communities. And you, in order to do that, you have to ask people more than to just click to sign a petition. Like, this clicktivism is killing us. Like, the whole Point is to get people to organize their community, uh, not to just sign our petitions. And I think that's a little bit of a mindset change. Uh, you look at groups like, you know, giving indivisible credit; they uh, their rural membership. I think people would be shocked to figure out how big, you know, their rural mm-hmm. membership is. And those people just wanted to be able to, you know, get pointed in the right direction, get some resources, and they kind of had this mentality that we'll take it from there. And so I think, regardless of which community you're talking about in rural areas, that is a common thread that just trusting those those that local leadership and sort of resourcing them is the best way to do it. Because if we try and do it, you know, marching orders one community at a time, it's just the it's just too big to scale.
1: I mean, what once again, is the best way for 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 instance our our listeners to find these smaller groups and uh you know in the in the states and you know click donate? I mean is that the, you know, smash that donate button is to is to pick out these these smaller groups and just donate to them so that they'll have the resources to build the infrastructure? Is that what we need? I think so. I mean, and I think
2: it does. And I think that, you know, getting past this this like urban-rural divide, I mean, there's so much that folks... Uh, in larger cities can do in terms of resourcing local, local leadership. And I, you know, new Georgia project would be a great one. Padere in in North Carolina is another one. Down home is another one. I mean, these are people that are doing, you know, the tough work, you know, day in and day out. And um, I think that those places where we get easier progressive wins, if we can start, you know, uh, uh, you know, volunteering time or resources to help expanding the base uh, I think in these other communities that would be a big win for all of us.
0: Matt, thank you so much for joining us. It's always such a pleasure. You are our, you're our second repeat guest and I'm excited Yay! to have you on. You're always you're always so insightful and and and, and you know I I'm going to admit this and I hate to say this, but I'm going to say it anyways is I had to sort of bias against rural America, right? I, I just this bitterness. It's I'm such a coastal elite when it comes to yeah. to rural America. And so it's it's really refreshing to see that it's I shouldn't be. Number one. Uh, number two, there are gettable votes. I mean, think you said uh, you said 11 percent of of uh, the population of North Carolina is communities of color in rural in rural counties. We only lost the president in the Senate races by three points right? I mean, we have the votes to win if we do the organizing. And so seeing rural America as sort of the the enemy mm-hmm. that we need to offset with with urban America and the changing suburbs, really, it sort of shortchanges both our allies in those rural communities that need all the help that we can offer them, but also just shortchange simple math. <laughs> the people right. are there that can help us win these closed states, and they can help us make states like Mississippi competitive in South Carolina and Texas. And so... Yeah, I really appreciate having you on to really help me sort of shift my mind. And I'm hoping some of our listeners do as well, because I'm sure I'm not
1: alone. Can I ask one last question real quick? If, if, if Democrats pass this COVID relief bill, is that a message that, they, that Democrats That's would be able to take to rural voters and say, we did this for you?
2: Absolutely. I was listening to the first part of of, of the show and I 100 percent agree with you. I mean, this is this is where we're missing the opportunity is not only do we have to pass these progressive popular policies, but we have to let people let the voters know we, that we did that. And I think that, the you know, the fewer Republicans that get on these things like the better. Right. It's it makes it it makes it so much clearer uh, who is actually fighting for these communities. Uh, The thing I will say is we can't just say it on our media channels. We have to break through, I think, the online, you know, disinformation web uh, to really reach voters where they're at. And I think that's Mm -hmm. going to be the challenge moving forward.
0: Put Joe Biden's big ass signature in every check, just like (laughs) (laughs) Donald Trump did. (laughs) Thank
1: you, Matt. We appreciate (laughs) you.
2: you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the invite.
0: Yeah, no, I mean everything that I said. It's it's so easy to lose track of, of of the importance of rural America. Not 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 the Q crowd. Like they're lost. They're lost at the Fox Newsland. Yeah. But that's not rural America. And equating the two right. really does everybody a disservice, including myself. So I'm so happy to have a mod to sort of remind me about that importance.
1: Well, uh, and we obviously have a we obviously have a North Carolina episode coming up. Uh, we we, we oh. may have a Mississippi at some point, but but we need to have <laughs> we need to have a North Carolina episode soon because we because that's going to be one of the major battlegrounds in in 2022. So but we need a good guest on about the Republican Party and what it's going through, partly because we were talking about earlier this whole idea that, you know, that they're going to oppose this COVID relief bill, that they're going to try and replay this 2009 effort. And at the same time, they are just so, you know, the, the their their approval numbers, their favorability numbers are tanking, and and on top of it all, of course, you have these tens of thousands of GOP defections among voter affiliations um, in the last it, you know, was some if there's some question, is it was it the Novo- after the November elections, or was it right after the January 6th riot where it um, where it spiked these GOP defections? But it whatever whatever the reason, there is definitely an an increase in anomalous, you know, an unusual number of GOP defections among voters right now, and uh, you know, I, I and. We're we're unclear. I think the data is still a little unclear on whether or not those defections are coming from people who are pro-Trump and don't think the Republican Party is pro-Trump enough, or if they're coming from people who are just disgusted by what happened on January sixth and what has become of the Republican Party and. Based on the data points I've seen, I think it leans towards the people who are anti-Trump and disgusted by what the party's become. But I do think there's they're losing voters on both sides of that equation. Anyway, we we definitely
3: yeah. yeah. I mean, they,
0: they are losing voters on both sides of the equation. I, I would, if I had to guess, an educated guess, not a <laughs> made-up guess, but an educated guess, is that it is sort of the the old school Republicans and and they been bleeding that support in the suburbs. The location of these of these changing registrations are in suburban areas. Right. So these are not areas that are hotbeds of Trumpism. And if you're a Trump Republican, there's there's no reason for you to abandon the party. The party's still Trump's party. And, and he's made it very clear that he's not letting go. And Mitch McConnell signaled that he, he can't he can't let it go. And I, I actually think Democrats offered him up and out on a silver platter. They, they gifted him a way to say, we're going to chop this, this cancer out of our party. And he was unwilling or unable to do so. And, and so you are seeing the slow erosion. And their problem isn't going to be the people who are changing registration. The problem is going to be like the Dixiecrats, people who remain registered Republicans but start voting differently over time. And they're just too lazy to change parties.
1: Right. And that's part. Right. Exactly. I mean, the the numbers of the numbers themselves are not huge numbers, but they are indicative of a larger wave of discontent is is what it is. Absolutely. Um, And and what I was writing about today is that is the fact that. This if if what we're seeing is is more of a defection on the side of the traditional Republicans who have been lifelongers, who, you know, who who can't stand what's happening to the party. Then what's going to happen with these GOP primaries where they're trying to find, you know, candidates to run a statewide race in Georgia, in North Carolina, you know, in other places in Ohio, is you're going to get the Trumpiest of those because you're not, because a lot of people have just said they're washing their hands. I mean, I literally read a quote from some woman who was like, I'm just voting in Democratic primaries now because it's the only place where I feel like I have a say of maybe trying to make the party a little bit more centrist. So, you know, so that I have a, a candidate that I'm excited about voting for. So but if that if those people aren't voting in the Republican primary, if the moderates aren't, they're going to get the Trumpiest candidates they can. They're going to end up by default getting the um, Trumpiest candidates possible for these races. And that's going to be a killer for them in any of these competitive states and in and, and, and some of the the most competitive districts in the House, too.
0: It could be a double edged sword, because do we really want a bunch of what are old school Republicans voting in Democratic primaries also affecting our ability to elect progressive candidates? Now, if they're electing Joe Biden types of, quote, centrist, which, uh, you know, he's he's come out of the gate incredibly progressive. I'm actually OK with that. But uh, if, if they're if they're electing, if they're uh, helping nominate less than than ideal Democrats, it could be it could be an issue. But at this point, I, I'm not I'm not overly you, worried about it.
1: I'm not overly worried about it either. And the reason I say that is because I think the center of gravity in the Democratic Party has shifted, and if if Joe Biden is able, uh, with his you know with pretty much solely Democrats, it looks like able to pass a COVID relief bill, start to get the economy humming again, which is already starting to look you know like it's making some gains now. You know, get people back to work, get the schools open, uh, things like that. Then I think that that the the new mantra in the Republican, I mean, I'm sorry, in the Democratic Party is we got to be aggressive. You know, if we have to go it alone, OK, our Democratic policies play well and they uh, and if they perform well, especially in 2022 and Democrats are able to keep control of Congress, then regardless of whether we have some moderating forces, um, you know, of people voting in the Democratic primaries, we're th- Democrats are still going to end up on the better side of that equation because whatever it becomes of the Republican Party, it's going to be so Trumpy. And I don't think that's good for the country. I honestly don't think it's good for the country. But at least the short term politics of that play better for the Democrats than they do for the Republicans.
0: Yeah. I mean, the danger is that we're one low turnout election away from electing seditionist insurrectionists fascist and so it's a, it's a little bit scary so we are going to have carolyn fiddler on she's going to join us she is daily cosis uh director of communications but she's also an expert on on state legislatures and when we're talking about this battle of the republican party the civil war a lot of that is playing out in state legislatures. so carolyn thanks for joining us on short notice
3: <laughs> delighted to be here
0: <laughs> so uh Where are you seeing these battles play out? I assume they're happening all over the country, right? Between moderate and conservative Republicans?
3: They are, um, but uh, the conservatives are winning. I've I've been watching the machinations of state legislatures for longer than I care to admit. And I find myself thinking a lot about 2010 when Republicans won a bunch of elections and took a lot of majorities and how you had sort of your moderates that came to power and they did implement a lot of really conservative things really quickly, but you didn't have your extremists like really wielding a lot of power, but now you do. Mm. Yeah. And what does that look like? That looks like people using the big lie of uh, Trump winning the presidential election to justify a whole new like swath of voter suppression laws, um, which they wanted to do anyway, but they are still using this, great falsehood um to to support this and and however you feel about these these voter suppression laws i mean everyone should be against them but however you feel about them basing them on this big lie is terrible right well let's but you so you're talking
1: about from a governance standpoint and it's it is terrible and we're gonna and democrats are gonna be spend the next two to four to 10 years battling against those suppression efforts right but from an electoral standpoint, in 2022, we're already starting to see where this is ca- this this sort of extremism that you're talking about is causing problems for them having more moderate candidates, more more statewide digestible candidates, and like one of those places, of course, is Pennsylvania, where you have um, I think uh, Representative former Representative Ryan Costello, right, who wants to run a statewide race to to replace. Pat Toomey as the Republican senator there. Um, but already he's warring with these factions of, you know, kind of extreme GOP factions that are pushing the big lie that are, you know, uh, that that are way, way right of center. And th- they're already there's already. A conflict, as I understand it, and you're probably even following this more closely than I am, Carolyn, in terms of in terms of what 's happening there and and whether or not that could kill his bid um, to be a more moderate force and therefore more palatable to more voters in a statewide election
3: you, you raise a really, really good point in terms of like where the Republican party is now in the in the immediate wake of trump, and he so he 's still very much a force in the party, as you said and it 's creating these factions and you know, as a, as a, as a Democrat, I, I, I hate to say it, uh, um, but it is, it, is, it is bad for the, governments, the co- governance of the country. Um, but it is, uh, is going to help Democrats electorally in these statewide races to have a choice between reasonable and very, very extreme. Uh, however, once you get below the statewide level, you're gonna have a whole new set of problems brought about by the next round of redistricting. So what
1: about what about the house? What about if you look at the congressional districts? Is this where this is gonna come? You know, it could play the Democrats' favor in the in the statewide races. What about the House?
3: <sighs> We're screwed. Oh <laughs> um, boy. We might get to run in twenty twenty two on the current set of maps because the census is so screwed up. We might not have mm-hmm. the data in time. Uh, so we might get one more election where Democrats, you know, are running wow. in districts that are not specifically newly tailored to elect more Republicans. Um, but if it's not 2022, it's going to be 2024 when we're gonna get a whole new set of maps that are going to screw, uh, Republicans or no, sorry, screw Democrats in the U S house and in state legislatures all across the country.
0: If we get a mulligan in 2022 under the existing boundaries, do we get the? Do we have another chance to win the redistricting battle in some of these key states by taking some state legislatures, maybe, and drawing the maps with different, you know, a different legislature?
3: We absolutely have a chance, um, but in a midterm election with a Democrat in the White House, it is going to be extremely challenging. But yes, uh, there is a real, d- there d- would I be mean that, no, Yeah, we get that. I chance. mean, that's
0: the, that's a real question, right? Because I think in a traditional normal election cycle, absolutely, we're we're headed for some from some losses. Uh, next year. But clearly, there's nothing normal and in, in routine about this election season. One, we don't know if those Trump-only voters are going to actually turn out and vote. That was a big factor in the, the ability of Republicans to limit the down-ballot damage. But also, this clear messaging. I mean, are you seeing anything in the state level, at, the, at that state level, on how passage of this coronavirus relief bill, this $1.9 trillion bill, might help Democrats, those down-ballot races?
3: Uh, it very well could. A lot of it's going to depend on how it is administered on the state level. So places that are currently run by Republicans, that could cut both ways. <laughs> yes. Or Republicans could get credit. It, uh, it, it, a, a lot's going to become known in the next several months when this bill finally gets passed uh, in Congress and we start seeing those effects. We went that.
1: Would that just take the cake if if they if if Democrats, if it becomes a party line vote where Democrats pass this thing and then the state and local money goes to, you know, out, out to all the states and the Republican governors managed to somehow take credit for this stuff without Democrat, without Republicans having voted for it in Congress? I mean, that would be fascinating and like a fascific- fascinating, fascinating a set of, you know, sort of like misinformation, disinformation campaign for the Republicans to be running on the state level.
3: Right. I mean, it's smart politics on one level to do that. But on the other, on, you know, the flip side of that is they have to be seen as embracing Biden to do that. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. is an innate liability right now for Republicans. So is, is,
0: it. is Biden the boogeyman? And again, we're talking down at the sort of most grassroots state legislature level. Is buying the kind of boogeyman that a Hillary Clinton or a Barack Obama or some, or a Hillary and Clinton Nancy. Anybody that, or Nancy Pelosi, anybody that's not an old white guy, right? Is he really – has he become a boogeyman at this point yet? I'm not seeing it, but I'm also not that plugged in at that level.
3: You, you raise a good point. Uh, it's not as bad, um, partially because you mentioned Hillary Clinton. Republicans spent – decades vilifying her you know making her into that bogeyman uh they didn't they didn't spend that time and effort on biden for whatever reason so he does not have he does not have as much baggage uh as some of his uh other democratic counterparts might so
1: Also, on top of that, you know, we did that we did that um, interview with uh, Kathleen Friddle and uh, or Friddle, sorry. And she was a historian and she was saying, too, that, you know, just his kind of his style is to not Biden's style is to not be in your face. You know, so he so he doesn't sort of offer up all these opportunities that maybe some democrats other democrats do just by virtue of you know well i mean some some cases it's just by virtue of their race or their gender that they offer up opportunities but on top of him not offering up those opportunities to just be you know purely racist purely sexist they also he just doesn't he just doesn't give he doesn't emote this sort of anti-Republican feel that some Democrats, you know, kind of do just by virtue of who they are. So its I think it's hard. It's much harder for them to vilify him, not only because they haven't been doing it for decades, but because he doesn't have this he doesn't have this really strong personality push that he's that he's constantly
3: sort of in people's face. Right. And on the campaign, you saw that he can be a little bit sort of pugilistic. He can bring that sort of fighting spirit When he wants to but he's being so smart right now and being real chill real about as middle of the road as you can be in terms of like things that are popular with the american people you know he's not he's not sniping at uh republicans in the senate he could but it's not going to do any good so i think he's playing really smart politics right now and i think that is going to be uh to democrats benefit down the ballot and and even if he's not a republican boogeyman i think that Republicans will still not be able to embrace him or his aid in the coming months. So,
0: Caroline, I know you came in last minute and I don't mean to put you on the spot because, you know, of of the question you may not be able to answer off the top of your head. But I'm curious uh, with this idea of a mulligan on redistricting and and if are there any states that would be obvious targets for flipping legislatures to help us on the redistricting front?
3: Oh, goodness. Yes, of course. I know the answer to this.
0: (laughs) I teed up the big juicy softball for you.
3: (laughs) That was was gorgeous. Uh, (laughs) Top of that list is absolutely the Texas house. Yes. Um, Pennsylvania is also very high on that list uh, as well as the Michigan house. Those would be, I believe my top vote getters (laughs) for that, uh, for that contest for sure.
0: Yeah, I think we're going to have to really work on on directing a lot of progressive energy and activism towards those seats in those state legislative races. And they're not as sexy as the top of the ballot races, but they're going to be so critical to our ability to to even hold a house, to even have a speaker. I think Pelosi's going to retire after this term, but to, you know, for another Democratic speaker. And so I'm glad those are three big critical important states and they also happen to be Battleground states, and I laugh when I look at the Senate map for 2022 because it's the exact same states we had to fight over last year, right? It's Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona. I think we have Arizona again.
1: North Carolina, Uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, Arizona.
0: Yep, North Carolina, Florida. (laughs) It's it's all the same states. But if we can sort of double up, and if we're we're fighting for that Pennsylvania Senate seat, and we're also looking at at flipping a lot of those seats, and it might even line up with some of the stuff that Hildreth said. Some of these, you know. Districts actually have rural components in them that are that are flippable. So um, I think it's going to be very critical for us to focus on that and realize that there's a big holistic battle on the on the ballot beyond just the candidates that are running.
3: Absolutely.
1: What's your parting thought for us, Carolyn? If you have if you have a parting thought, talk about a softball. I mean, it might be too big a question, but what's your parting thought for? what people should be keeping in mind going into the 2022 elections. And let's be clear, too, that Republicans with the redistricting thought that they might pick up like a a half. Half dozen seats, right? Just from redistricting alone, that they could pick up a half dozen seats, and and that's basically like what Democrats control the the House by right now. Um, so they thought they could pick up what they needed just by redistricting alone in order to pick up a majority in 2022. So, anyway, I, I just want to be clear about that for people because I think people didn't, uh, you know, not everybody pays attention to to that what the numbers are. Um, but nice. anyway. If you had a if you had a parting thought for
3: people, viewers to go away with, something that they could do something about, what what would it be? Uh my parting thought would be to pay attention to what's happening in your state legislatures right now. Almost all of them, all across the country, whatever state you live in, it's almost certainly in session right now. And those lawmakers, your lawmakers, are passing bills, passing laws uh that are going to affect your day-to-day life. It's not all voter suppression. Uh, it's it's things like your school funding. It's it's a, there's a lot of COVID relief moving through legislatures now. Um, not as much as we'd like, but things are happening every day at the state legislative level right now. And I would say take a look at that. I know things in D.C. are very are very sexy. Um, they are much more attention-getting, and it's easier to find news about what's happening in D.C. than it is on the, on in your local... You know, town or state, and that's unfortunate. That's a whole other discussion about the media and where the local press is right now. But I would right. say, find out, seek out that information, become attuned to what's happening in your state capital.
0: Thank you so much, Carolyn. I appreciate. We appreciate you joining us on such last uh, last minute notice. That was really great of you.
3: I'm glad to be here.
0: The, I mean, it amazes me that, that we may get a mulligan on redistricting because of Donald Trump's incompetence in running anything.
3: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> including
0: that was
1: something about that would just be so on brand if he managed to like screw Republicans out of being able to retake the House because he was so incompetent. And also for them, because they like supported him the whole time. Anyway, let's fingers crossed on that one, right? Yeah. So. I'm, I'm,
0: yeah, I'm hoping that and, and, uh, that there's no real rush or hurry <laughs> in the Biden administration to get these numbers out and to to drag it out. But the fact is, I mean, I say that almost facetiously. They fundamentally effed up the the census, and so they're going to have to go back out in the field, and they're going to have to plug a lot of holes uh, because, ironically, they were trying to rush and get it done before. Actually, I don't know why they were rushing to get it done because uh, they should have had it done, yeah, last year. So I'm not sure what what their well, rationale but was.
1: Part part of it was. Part of it got behind schedule, I think, because of the pandemic too. So oh, right. the whole process should have taken, you know, what they should have done was given the whole time, the, the whole process, the 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 you know the amount of um, time span and and gave it the possibility to breathe that it really needed, and instead they were trying to truncate the process in order to, you know, cut immigrants out uh, out of the yeah um, the immigrant power. stuff
0: was so there's some legals hangups yep. there as, as they had to readjust because they were trying to count uh they're trying to get a census of, of undocumented immigrants so that then they could you know for their political agenda uh well the census is very clearly says persons like there's no right. notion in the constitution about anything having to do with uh immigration status so that also hamstrung them but uh it would be ironic and i, I really do hope that there's no real hurry in the biden administration to fix that and uh Given how much they've had to unwind in all of these agencies, I mean, we haven't even seen them start working on the U.S. Postal Service, right, which was t- royally effed up. It's, it may take a while and um, yeah. it would only be poetic justice.
1: I just want to make one last point about something that uh, Carolyn said that's sort of near and dear to my heart because I, I used to do local reporting and and that is just the hollowing out of the, you know, the people, the coverage, the, um, the access to news. So I think it's really, you know, she said, hey, pay attention to what's happening in your own state legislature. And it's hard in many places to even get access to that information. And it, it makes it so much easier for Republicans to sell their base on lies about what's happening in the state legislature, because there isn't good reporting in so many, you know, this is sort of like a, you know, a, a, a news, you know, yeah, the local
0: newspapers have been decimated, so they don't exist yeah. anymore. That's what, this so, is why, as Matt was talking about, so much of rural America gets its knees from Facebook because traditional news outlets have all been decimated. So it's Fox News and Facebook. I mean, that seems to be a lot of the diet, the news diet. And probably neither of those options really gives you an idea of what's happening at the state level. So the question then doesn't become, what is my state legislator doing in in, in my state capital, Springfield, Illinois, or whatever it might be. It's, oh, he's Democrat, like those evil Democrats in D.C. And then it becomes right. one and the same. And, and uh, it makes it harder to really differentiate yourself unless your state is shifting like a Virginia or a Colorado where you just ride the wave into the right. majority. So that's all the time we have for our show today. Thanks everybody. Thanks to uh, Matt Hildreth for joining us. Thank you to Carolyn Fidler for for her last minute save. Uh, thanks to Walter Einenkel for joining us. Please like, subscribe, follow, whatever it is at your favorite, uh, either YouTube, Facebook Live, or your favorite podcasting platform. Really appreciate you guys joining us this week, and we will see you next week. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at DailyCoast.com or on Twitter at DailyCoast. See you next week.